0: Hello, and welcome to The Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Ariana Huffington. She's the founder of The Huffington Post and Thrive Global, in addition to many other successful pursuits as an author and businesswoman. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for making the time today. Thank you. I'm just thrilled to be with you. Well, I'm trying to figure out where to start, but I think I'll start macro and uh, and zoom in a little bit. But I was reading about you and your life and just the the trajectory of kind of how it's evolved, you as a person and your interests. And your career, your life has been truly remarkable. I think what really has impressed me is the juxtaposition of traditional accomplishments and success alongside these really deeply entrenched family values and this seeking for this higher truth and meaning and, and what is life for. And and I, I have to ask you, as someone that's always trying to figure out how to manage time, how you've managed the time to be a mother, the author of 15 books, a business executive, a founder, in the political arena, it just seems like you've done everything, and now you're— um, you're advocating for people to make more time and to take care of themselves. And so what is what is the magic recipe?
1: <laughs> well, what I learned is that actually we have this very unscientific way of looking at time um, because all the latest uh, scientific findings and all the data actually shows us that when we take care of ourselves, when we make time, to recharge, to speak in athletic terms, to recover, Uh, we are actually operating at peak performance. And you know that as um, an Olympic athlete, that if you did not take care of yourself, you know, if you had not slept, if you ate, uh, you know, uh, rich uh, food and drank too much before a competition, you wouldn't be as good. Um, and so we are now beginning to to take the same rules that you've known and every great athlete knows into corporate life and into everyday life, and that's what I learned. I learned it the hard way by collapsing from exhaustion and burnout in 2007, two years into building half post being there divorced mother of two daughters and buying into this delusion that if I'm going to be super founder and super mom, you know, I have to be always on and I don't have time to really take care of myself. And as a result, you know, I collapsed and broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of my recalibrating my life and also kind of becoming a complete missionary about getting that message out to the world.
0: That reminds me because I was reading a few different articles that you were quoted in that at around that time, when you said you woke up in a pool of blood and you're trying to figure out what's wrong, that you were spending a lot of time in doctors waiting rooms. Yes. <laughs> and it was a very good place to reflect and ask yourself, is this what success looks like? I woke up in a pool of blood Exhausted. Is this what success looks like? And was that really the first time that you had stopped to to ask yourself, am I validating and accepting some outdated version of success that doesn't work for me?
1: So I always had a sort of spiritual underpinning to my life. Uh, When I was um, 17 years old, I went to India and studied comparative religion. Uh, I always felt there was another dimension to life. Um, I firmly believed, as long as I can remember, that we have that place of peace, strength, and wisdom in us that um, you can call soul or spirit. But I think as I got caught up in the world and in... And my goals and achievements, um, that became less and less central in my life. And uh, so coming to In A Pool Of Blood was a great wake-up call um, because it, it made me um, look again and and see that not just my definition of success, but the world's definition of success was very flawed. That it basically had come down to uh, two metrics, you know, money and status slash power. And that's why in my book called Thrive, uh, the um, subtitle is The Third Metric of Success, which includes well-being, our health, obviously, Wisdom, um, wonder, a sense of wonder about life and the universe and giving. And for me, it requires all these elements to have a full, complete life.
0: I I can't agree more. (laughs) And for me, it's been a journey because as an athlete, there's one metric and it's, it's winning and it's winning at the Olympic Games every four years. And so, at your level, <laughs> but that's what it's really. There's no, there's no margin. There's no room for error. It's it's black and white. Uh, it's gold is winning, silver is losing, and and so it's it's a world and a mindset that you develop where you start at such a young age that you become your identity becomes synonymous with the the sport, so I was a figure skater, and I didn't know who I was outside of that. And so I could see my life in four-year increments, 2002, 2006, and there would be these defining moments, these, these opportunities, and would I take them, or would I fail? And so there was a lot of pressure, self-imposed, but also from the rest of the world, the expectations, And and so only once I began to, when I retired and began to explore the bigger world, you know, the world outside of sports, that I realized that the world isn't so black and white and success, there isn't a simple metric of a gold medal around your neck that's defined as success. And, And so it's been a decade plus journey for me to kind of ask these questions and Uh, dive into philosophy and to find the importance of connection and family. And, you know, just a slight segue is I always thought my lack of fulfillment was because I had a silver and not a gold. (laughs) You know, it was my mistake, my fall, and something that I would have to live with. But I figured all my friends that had won Olympic gold medals, you know, they had complete closure, complete satisfaction. And I realized that there was still a hollowness in their life, and it was because the the pursuit was gone. Once they had retired, um, they lost their meaning. They lost their identity. They lost their purpose. And so that's really shifted how I've looked at everything and the need to have connection, to have spirituality, and redefine success in, in so many ways. And I think something that really sums it up is that when we, we think back to kind of philosophers and um, like Socrates and um, and Plato, they, they really ask like what the good life is. And, and you mentioned in, in one of your books, I'm not sure if it was in Thrive, like we don't ask that question anymore. We ask what is success mm-hmm. and how did success get so far away from the good life?
1: Right. How did we basically shrink the definition of success and the definition of the good life simply to these two metrics of money and status. Uh, but I'd love to ask you, if I may, what's, what's your definition of your spirituality now?
0: So I think I was so self-absorbed in needing to perform for validation um, that I didn't have space for spirituality. And so I think later in my mid-20s, my, my mother and my sister became very interested in in Buddhism and meditation and in yeah, Vipassana and different retreats. And so through them, and through different kind of heartbreak and you know, struggles in my life, I found Pema Chodram, the oh, you know the Buddhist yes. nun. and and I just found this this greater understanding of like the what the world is here to teach us, and that this kind of Instagram culture or this winning for this moment, of what it looks like to everyone else is somewhat hollow and it's almost like a, a movie set of buildings with nothing behind them, mm. right? It's What I found is really worthwhile was like the pursuit of something um, because it defined me and gave me this goal. But spirituality is, I think, something that I'm finding now and I'm finding that in nature. I'm finding that in connection to family and I'm finding it in a lot of Buddhist texts. And I think— The reason I'm finding it there is because as an athlete, you think you're responsible for everything and you don't allow for serendipity. And you have to realize that you are one person in this world and there's so much luck and so much chance and randomness that you can't take complete ownership and responsibility for everything that happens. You have to just allow. So, allowing is my biggest challenge. It's my work. In fact, um,
1: at home on my nightstand, I have a little saying that says, life is a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. And that allowing is is just such an important part of life. Otherwise, we are in a constant state of stress and pressure.
0: And when... Was that something you found later in your life, that you made space for the allowing? Or? Yes, you know, I fortunately. Um, it's not something athletes are good at. <laughs> We're really no. terrible at just allowing things to happen.
1: Um, fortunately, I um, always had that strong spiritual sense. Um, I started meditating when I was 13. Um, I lived most of the time, even when I was married with my mother, who had a very deep sense of spirituality, of um, being in the moment. You know, one of her favorite sayings was, don't miss the moment. And so I was kind of surrounded um, by that attitude and that approach to life. Um, But after my uh, burnout, it became kind of very central and uh, and very much... um, a daily connection that I I value more than anything. And as you said, I find it in my relationship with my children, my close friends, as well as in my relationship
0: with spirit. You brought up your mother, and she is referenced many times in your, your writings. And she sounds like such, like, her ethos and what she embodied uh, was just so incredible. And and my mother uh, played such a huge role in my life, and I have a very close connection with her. And so I found myself just having this kind of sense of wonder of like these, these values that she instilled in you. And, and something especially, I think you had said that she saw failure as necessary, failure as a stepping stone to success. And that must have been so instrumental and freeing as as an approach and how you went about your life in the world. Very freeing uh, because, you know, I was brought up in a
1: one-bedroom apartment in Athens, Greece. My parents had separated. Um, And it was really because my mother always made me feel that I was not limited by my circumstances, that I could dream, you know, dream of going to Cambridge, um, dream of what I wanted to achieve in my life. And the great thing about her is that she always made me feel that I could aim for my dreams, but that I should not be defined by them. And that life was still an amazing adventure, even if I did not go to Cambridge or even if I did not achieve um, whatever is the the equivalent of gold in the Olympics.
0: (laughs) But I can't even imagine... I think I have that understanding now. As a child, I had a very one-track mind about what needed to be accomplished. But to have a mother like that, that would uh, encourage all your dreams, but say to not be defined by that. Yes, yes, And I think that's something that as retired athletes we struggle with later because we were most certainly defined by our dreams. And then when our dreams are no longer, you know, those dreams that defined us for two decades are no longer a feasible way of life anymore there there is a time of a lot of self reflection and questioning and and who are we in the world and a lot of what this podcast is about is uh, identity and about purpose because those are two things that really define an Olympian and two things that oftentimes get lost when an Olympian retires and and you've done so many different things and it seems like a lot of the things kind of happened, you know, that you had no intention of being a writer, but it it just unfolded in a certain way. And, and I'm very curious how your identity, your own sense of identity has shifted over the years and, and how you see it now.
1: So I love uh, the theme of your podcast because it is so key. I found that Um, As I was less and less defined by my role in the world, I was able to make decisions that um, seemed risky, like leaving half-post. You know, there I was, you know, running a big global company um, with 18 uh, editions around the world. And I left in 2016 because my heart wanted me to, spend 100% of my time on this mission of ending the stress and burnout epidemic and helping millions of people around the world who are kind of destroying their lives, their health, their relationships because of this false belief that they can't take their, their food off the accelerator. And um, And if I had completely identified with my worldly role, I would not have done it. And I look around and see how many people stay in jobs long after they've stopped um, loving them or, or getting, getting a lot of value from them. And, um, and it's such a shame because they feel that who would they be if they left? I mean, you see it in politics. You see people who don't dare to take Stands because they're afraid they will lose re-election, and so this identity with our role um, is, I think, one of the, One of the most um, difficult things to break, but absolutely essential if we're going to make decisions that really lead to our evolution as human beings.
0: And how does one break <laughs> that <laughs> attachment or connection, oneness with an identity?
1: I really think it's hard to break without some kind of spiritual identification. Um, I, I, was, um, I was doing Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, and she asks everybody this question, what do you know for sure? And I remember that um, I said to her something which I really feel is central to not being defined by your role. And this is that um, no matter how magnificent our job or our position in the world is, who we are inside ourselves is more magnificent. And uh, being able to connect with that is, is kind of an amazing journey in life, and the most important journey. And whatever, whatever our jobs and our roles and our successes are like part of the journey. And I, I had a dream, actually, um, that summed up this for me, which was I was on a train in my dream. <laughs> and uh, in my dream, the train was going home. And um, it was like going home to God. And everything that happened in my life, Was scenery. And some of it was beautiful scenery, and some of it was ugly scenery, like any life, you know, that is a mixture. But the train kept moving. And I realized that suffering comes from clinging, either clinging to the great things, which don't stay forever, or clinging to the painful things. And if we can allow ourselves to be in that movement of life you know that's why i love train journeys um then we don't identify in that um, limiting way to whatever part of the journey we're going through
0: i completely agree clinging and or attachment and aversion are the kind of the two things that pull us and and why we suffer but certainly easier said than done, and I know that a personal dynamic that I struggle with is understanding the peace that I can find within when I'm really pursuing an activity or a mission that I feel moves me and is fulfilling, but then I get caught up in the external validation. It's almost like, is my voice too small to trust what I love when the world values this or applauds me for that? and so it's it's this duality of how much do you follow your your passion and what you believe in if the world is validating you for something else and it seems like you are of a pretty strong grounding in the personal the inner voice that the noise of the world you know and its direction takes a back seat, or maybe I'm wrong and maybe that's been a journey over time of how you've kind of struggled with the tension of those two voices.
1: It's definitely been a journey. Um, and um, I've learned often through the hardest times in my life um, what matters and, and, and where my eye of the hurricane is. I, I've always loved that image. Uh, how even in the middle of the most tumultuous time in our lives, there is that eye of the hurricane where we can find peace, and from that place, we're actually much more effective at dealing
0: with whatever life brings us. Certainly, and I want to come back. You mentioned Thrive Global and and launching that, thinking about that as you were still at the Huffington Post, and. I guess the ethos, the message of, of what it's about is, you know, a quote from the website, well-being, a well-being and productivity platform with the mission of changing the way we work and live by ending the collective delusion that burnout is the price we must pay for success. And I think that's so well put, but I think people have to look at it and be like, well, Really? Can I can I do this without sacrificing everything, you know, time with my family, other things that I love for this notion of success? And maybe is that is that a a luxury that people who have already put in that time mm-hmm. and climbed that ladder can afford. Right. But I think it's to bring the awareness to that at, at such a stage is is such a huge statement and it feels like this is this is your legacy. Well,
1: definitely that's my mission. And, um, and we want to help people move from this awareness to action because we feel that what really makes the difference is when, when you begin to implement what we call micro steps, you know, small incremental daily uh, steps that become new habits. And then we begin to experience life very differently and begin to connect with that deeper place in ourselves. And we call our micro steps too small to fail because we know that for real change to happen, you have to start small and uh, and build that new muscle. Uh, so... Um, we have over 700 micro steps, who have a behavior change product that is like a coach in your pocket that gives you these personalized micro steps, but also gives you inspiration to encourage you along the journey. Um, and the inspiration is um, both in terms of poetry and uh, music and uh, whatever touches our hearts, but also it's um, what do we call new role models, like people who are successful, who are practicing these things, because that kind of almost like gives us permission to, to make these changes. So, you know, we have Jeff Bezos writing on Thrive that why he sleeps for eight hours because it improves his decision-making. Or the chief business officer at Google writing why he doesn't, Um, look at his phones when he's he's with his children. And a lot of other successful people in the arena, it could be somebody like Selena Gomez writing about her digital detox. And um, through machine learning, we feed um, the role models that would be more meaningful to someone, depending on whether they're a millennial or a business person. And The goal is to actually encourage people to make these small incremental changes and see for themselves how different life is and how their performance improves, actually. Not just their health and happiness and well-being, but their very performance.
0: And is there a sense of permission? And I'm not sure if that comes from the individual, the reader who comes to thrive, or the permission because they see a business leader or a celebrity taking these steps to make time for self-care?
1: Definitely permission, because uh, even though the, our culture is changing dramatically, I mean, now sleep, for example, which used to be so despised, and we have all these phrases in our culture like, I sleep when I'm dead, you snooze, you lose. Now is being covered in the pages of the Wall Street Journal and the Harvard Business Review, as something that leaders need to improve decision making, etc. But even so, um, the key, and that's what we're focusing on, is to move from awareness to action. Because people may now begin to believe that if they get enough sleep, if they exercise, if they feel grateful, if they don't eat junk, (laughs) you know, they're going to be more effective at everything. But actually doing that is not easy. So that's where we come in, both both through the behavior change product, but also through workshops, through digital programs, like the one we just launched with um, Stanford called Thriving Mind, that Accenture is deploying to all their 470,000 employees. To help people understand um, how our minds work and what are sort of the signals that we get, um, that if we intervene uh, with the tools and techniques that we give them, they don't have to become depression or anxiety. Makes a lot of sense
0: uh, that. The tools are necessary, the awareness is necessary, and then you add the role models on top of it. And then you you start to change a public consciousness and and give people permission that it's not just, you know, giving up sleep, giving up self-care in order to have a chance at success. Exactly. I think, again, we're so influenced by what we see with social media and in our culture that taking this leap from HuffPo to come here and start this, I think... I, I certainly appreciate because I need I need the validation and, like, you know, the little kind of shove from behind to be like, it's okay. You can walk this way. and and that brings me to a theme that, you know, kind of a little bit of a duality of both failure and and fear. And I think a lot of people never try something new because they're afraid of failure. Yes. right? And I think because of your mother's views, you know, you kind of saw, oh, failure is just a way of learning. You know, it's it's necessary to become something great. Whereas maybe if you were an Olympic athlete, failure is just <laughs> failure. And it's it's not necessarily, you don't feel like, oh, I learned so much. You know, it's, you kind of <laughs> identify as that. And I was wondering if there's one failure in your life that that really was an inflection point or something that really taught you— that, that you wouldn't be the person you are today, that you wouldn't have had the success that you've had today if not for this failure.
1: Yes, it was actually um, after my, my first book was published, um, which was sort of an accidental um, book because it was commissioned while I was still at university. It was a book about the changing role of women. It did incredibly well. And then everybody else wanted me to keep writing about it. Women, But, you know, frankly, I was 24 and I had said absolutely everything I knew and more. So instead, I locked myself up and wrote a book on the crisis in political leadership, which nobody wanted to publish and which was rejected by 37 publishers. And um, during that time, you know, as one rejection after another was coming in, I ran out of the money I had made with my first book. And I was beginning to question whether my first book was a fluke and uh, I, I really should go and get a real job. And um, and I remember walking kind of down St. St. James's Street in London where I lived at the time and kind of depressed and, and seeing um, a branch of Barclays Bank and going in and asking to see the manager and asking for a loan. And um, and I had no assets, but for some reason, the bank manager gave me the loan, which allowed me to keep it together for a few more rejections until finally the book was published. And that was kind of a real turning point in my life. Um, it made me really understand perseverance and how very often um, people give up um, just before Something is about to break and and also how um, sometimes in our darkest moment, uh, like in the fairy tales, you know, you have the hero or the heroine lost in a dark forest and then these helpful animals come out and guide them out of the forest. Well, in life, you know helpful animals appear in many guises like a bank manager <laughs> and um, and so it was a, it was really um, in the end something that gave me a lot of trust in life and a lot of trust in persevering. That's
0: so beautiful because I think having a sense of trust, is probably the biggest differentiator, you know, in yes. someone that kind of sees the worst or someone that tries to mitigate, tries to always mitigate risk to to having that trust. And would you kind of ascribe that to a, a personality trait uh that you were you're willing to instead of going to the bank and ask for a job application <laughs> that you went in and asked for a loan? Is that was that personality? Because I'm I'm so I'm so curious about that because I kind of struggle on my own with um, how much to to believe. You know, like the optimist and the pessimist in me are constantly battling. And so I, I wasn't sure when you said I entered the bank. I was like, oh, she's <laughs> going to apply for a job. <laughs> oh, no, she got a loan. Like, it's brilliant. Um, and so what do, you, what do you ascribe that to?
1: So I am fundamentally very optimistic. I'm— I just feel that um, even when things don't turn out the way we want, um, when we look back, it's going to be for our best. So I have um, a favorite saying by Rumi, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor. And, And when I look back at my life, a lot of the biggest heartbreaks turned out to be the best thing that happened. I mean, when a man I was very much in love with and spent seven years with, didn't want to marry me or have children, and I ended up leaving London and moving to New York to put the, the ocean between us because I very much wanted to have children. I was clear about that. Um, I Now looking back, I realized that the best things that happened in my life happened because of that. Uh, You know, at the time when the heartbreak happens, it's hard to see that. But if you have a basically optimistic attitude, um, it becomes a little easier to put up and transcend, you know, challenges and heartbreaks.
0: And I know you've said and reiterated what Steve Jobs has said, that you kind of, looking forward, life doesn't make sense, but only... Looking backwards, can you connect dots and make sense of that? And it really seems that um, you know some of the most inspirational people in our society are the people that have that that perseverance and believe that everything that comes at them is is there to teach them something or take them to a next step, even if they don't understand where it's going. And again, I think, and maybe I'm. I blame too much of my my mental development on uh, on sports, but I think being an athlete, there's so much ownership that we don't really allow uh, for serendipity that the Olympics are four years away and you need to make a plan down to every single day and which off-ice coach, which days are on, which competitions you want to compete in, when you want to peak When you want to give yourself rest. And so if something like an injury comes at you or you unexpectedly lose a jump, it's just, it's, it's somehow your fault and you need to be able to fix it because it's like your body and your mind is something that you're supposed to be able to control. And as we, you know, you see with many athletes, you know, you can dedicate your life to something and an injury hits you out of the blue, um, or, you know, if you're in a sport like you're in speed skating, and someone kind of knocks you down, and the person that was in last place wins, and that's life. But I think the athlete, um, the athlete's mindset hasn't had a lot of practice with that, and so it's something um, kind of li- later in my twenties I'm I'm embracing, and I love you know your examples, and even how that brought you into writing, and and now you're such a prolific author, writing fifteen you know, writing 15 different books and that's not the only thing that you've, you've done. So I think it really, it showcases this beauty of allowing life to show you that we don't have all the answers of the trajectory.
1: I think there's so much you are teaching people by looking at the trajectory of your life uh, in this way. There's an incredible amount of lessons, you know, that everybody can take. As you said, you know, you have everything planned and then suddenly you get an injury.
0: Life's what happens while you're making plans. Yes, (laughs) I want to circle back to some of the current projects you're working on now, and you're certainly very busy and Thrive is doing so many interesting things, but you've also just launched Meditative Stories, and I happen to have just listened to, to your story, which is how I learned of your, your journey to Cambridge. And, you know, it's so wonderful. It's set to this very, very relaxing music. <laughs> and it's this inspirational message. And you feel like you're getting to know this kind of inner process or journey of, you know, the, a tremendously successful, interesting person in the world. And so how did that come to you? So
1: actually, Meditative Story, which is the name of this podcast we launched, it was the idea of an amazing team, um, Wait What is the name of the production team that produced TED and produces Reed Hoffman's podcast, Masters of Scale. And they came to us with this idea of creating a podcast that would help people through storytelling connect to meditation and mindfulness. And uh, as you know, a lot of people hear that they should be meditating, but they have a very hard time. But everybody loves a story. So we bring them in through meditation, and then the podcast has all these mindfulness prompts, um, sounds, um, music, that kind of put people in a meditative state. And uh, every podcast has a storyteller who tells a pivotal story from their life. And my pivotal story is when I saw a picture of Cambridge Magazine, uh, of Cambridge in a magazine, and I told my mother and everyone else who would listen that I want to go there. And everyone said to me, don't be ridiculous. You can't go there. You don't speak English. We have no money. And it's hard even for English girls to get into Cambridge. But my mother said, let's find out how we can get you there. And so... This is the story of how I got into Cambridge, uh, but also a story about my mother who never made me feel that if I didn't get into Cambridge, that would be the end of my life, Uh, back to our original point of not over-identifying with our success.
0: That's such a beautiful message, I think, in this day and age, that we can have goals and they can motivate us and have dreams, but we need to cultivate a separate identity yes. and a sense of belonging outside that. of that. Well, I, this has been an incredible interview and I want to ask you one last question that I ask everyone. And that is in life, what is your Olympic moment? If you can think of one and, you know, I think from an athlete's perspective, it's this moment that we've been working towards our whole lives and then this aha when you were either, and it could be many moments, you know, on top of a podium <laughs> or seeing, you know, your family and friends supporting you in a lifelong dream that's finally come true and, and what that might be for you in your life. So actually
1: my Olympic moment, um, has to do with my launching thrive and, um, taking that risk to start um, something completely new from scratch. As we know, there are never any guarantees. And then seeing the impact it has on people's lives. And, uh, you know, even seeing just one life changed, uh, seeing just one person who can breathe more easily because they don't have to cling to this very outdated definition of success is something which fills me with... um, Incredible joy, and I love sharing it with my two daughters, who are both investors in the company and um, very committed to put these ideas into practice in their own lives and and to see them uh, come to life through our work here.
0: That's so beautiful. It's this. I see it as this light at the end of the tunnel, like this permission. For self-care and for balance, mm-hmm. and, and we
1: give it to each other, because we are all on this journey. You know I see ourselves as very much works in progress. It's not like anybody's doing this journey perfectly. But we can learn from each other, support each other, and um, and constantly evolve. Thank you. Thank, Thank you
0: so much. Thank you for what
1: you are doing. I think it's absolutely
0: amazing. Oh, well, this was such a privilege to get to ask you these questions and get inside your mind, even just for a little while. I know our audience will love it. And I'm, I'm very excited to continue to watch Thrive and how it grows. Well, and I hope
1: we can yeah. do more together. We would love yeah. that.
0: I would love that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.